book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in, since it was raining and cold. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man, no doubt, is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. After they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds, and they said he was a god. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask for your spirit to fill this room, to open our minds to experience, to to know your word and to experience the joy of what it is to believe in your gospel. Preach powerfully through Pastor Jeff that you may be glorified and we may be transformed into your son's image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Exciting, huh? Oh, man. If you weren't tempted to get a couple tears in your eyes during that, something's wrong. (laughs) That was just so great. Great to have you all here. Congratulations to those who followed Jesus in baptism. And for those of you who came in a little bit later and you missed it, just to reiterate what uh, Pastor Daniel said, the reason why we do baptisms this way, the reason why this is our ceremony is because we believe that every person who is getting baptized is a gift to the Lord. And we want to offer those gifts to the Lord in an atmosphere of worship and celebration and praise. And we also want every person to get baptized. We want the first thing that they hear when they come up out of the water is the celebration and the welcome of this body to say welcome. Welcome to the faith. Welcome to the family. And so that was just exciting. And I hope you get a chance to, if you see any of the baptizees walking around afterwards, just say, hey, congratulations on your decision to follow Jesus in baptism. We are actually closing out our series this week called The Relentless Gospel in the Book of Acts. And we will be in Acts chapter 28. Uh, We're going to do one more message next week to kind of recap all the the greatest hits, you know, like the sort of the insights along the way. But today we're going to be looking at this post-shipwreck scene. And this is a scene in which last week in chapter 27, the ship is wrecked. And it has run aground. And they have all just come floating in on broken pieces. And now they're coming onto the shore. And right after the snake bite incident, now let me just say two things about that, okay? First of all, the, the citizens of Malta... Uh, Luke refers to them as barbarians. The, the word he uses in the Greek just means the barbarians. Your translation might not have that, but that was just a social designation. And so the Greeks felt like, Luke was probably Greek, and the, the Greeks felt like anyone who, who wasn't a Greek or wasn't a Jew had to be a barbarian. And uh, so these folks had had a reputation in the ancient world of hospitality. If you landed on their shores, they were required by their gods to show you hospitality. But you also see a bit of their religious superstition there, don't you? Because they come to two very wrong, opposite conclusions. I mean, Paul is either being immediately judged by God because of his sin, because he was bitten by this viper, or he is a God. And both assessments are wrong. But after the snake bite incident, Publius, the chief magistrate of Malta, 
immediately offers Paul and his companions, he, he welcomes them in. He says, hey guys, you can rent a house. You can minister freely here on the island of Malta. And after three months of rest and fruitful ministry and replenishing of lost supplies and resources, they venture out again and board another Alexandrian uh, spice vessel bound for Rome. And they will see Mount Vesuvius along the way. They will see awesome sights, man. They will pull into the harbor of Naples, which is one of the most awesome ancient cities you could pull into, harbor cities that you could pull into, but also very tragic. And you can see Mount Vesuvius rising above the city of Pompeii. Its residents do not know. They are unaware that in 19 short years, their city will be buried in a pure plastic flow of molten ash and mud. And they are surprised when they dock at Puleoli, because they discover there's already a church, there's already a congregation of Christians there at Puleoli, and they come out to welcome them, and they get to stay with them for a week, just ministering the gospel and ministering God's word for a week. And Paul had written this magisterial letter a few years before. It's called the Letter to the Romans. Have you heard of it? That, le- that is a letter to end all letters. It is one of the largest letters in the ancient world, uh, maybe the largest. And so Paul writes this magisterial letter to tell the Romans about the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith. And so when they arrive there, about 43 miles outside of the city, the believers who are already there come out to greet Luke and Aristarchus and Paul. And they greet them at the form of Apius. And they celebrate them and they return back with them. And Paul was allowed to stay to rent a house there in Rome And the adventure had led them finally to preach in the epicenter of the power of the Mediterranean world. He will preach the gospel in the Roman Forum. Rome was no doubt the greatest city Paul had ever seen. There was more than a million slaves that lived there and more than a million citizens. And they lived side by side. On his way into the city, he would have passed the tent and leatherworking shops. Those were always, the trade shops were always on the perimeter of the city. Do you know why? because it stank. It smelled. The the smell of the trade shops was overpowering, and so they would put those on the perimeter of the city, and so as you went in, you would see the tradesmen, you would see the slaves working in in the trade shops, but once penetrating the perimeter, he would have witnessed the magnificence of Rome's seven hills, the luxurious villas and the lush gardens, vineyards and unmatched architecture. Below, Nero's palace was a large ornamental lake later the site of the Roman Colosseum itself. And by contrast, he would have seen right next to that shocking poverty, densely populated neighborhoods built right on top of each other of slaves and tradesmen and artisans, suffocating markets, all in a state of general squalor. So the splendor of Rome and the squalor of Rome right there together, next door neighbors, And so he rents this house, he's allowed to rent this house, and he turns it into a makeshift college. The believers who are already there come to him to learn the word of God, to be taught, and he's he's free for two years to openly preach the gospel and to teach the word of God. And the Jews who are part of the local synagogue who do not believe yet, they also come to be taught by him or to discuss these matters. And the text ends by saying this, and he welcomed all who visited him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I want that on my tombstone, by the way. That is a great way to end the book. 
That is a great thing for somebody to say, the last thing for somebody to say about your life. Now, fast forward, 313 A.D., 313 A.D., an emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which granted Christianity freedom to be preached and proclaimed and lived in the Roman Empire. At this time, in 313 A.D., there are 2.5 million Christians in the world. Now, fast forward, 380 A.D. Theodosius, Emperor Theodosius, issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which decreed now Christianity is our official state religion. The Christian faith is the religion of the state. And here's a line from that decree. I want to read it to you. It said, according to the apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the one deity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in equal majesty and in holy trinity. Now, how did we go from Paul renting out a little house in Rome for two years, and groups of people just coming and going, being taught by him, being nourished in their faith, being encouraged in their faith. The Christian faith grew like a grass fire across the Roman Empire, and in 313, 313 there are 2.5 million Christians in the world. In 380, at this edict of Thessalonica, there are 25 million Christians in the world. The Christian faith is spreading just as Jesus promised it would. And now we are witnessing the end of this book and the fulfillment of it going into the ends of the world. But there are some lessons from it that I want you to take away. And the first one is this. We remain faithful in the land between promise and fulfillment. We remain faithful in the land in between promise and fulfillment. Now, remember we said last week that in Acts chapter 23, God, the Spirit, spoke to Paul and told him, you will proclaim the gospel before Caesar. You will. You will proclaim the gospel in Rome. He has this promise. He knows that this is true. But between that promise and between him landing in Rome, between him arriving there in the city... He will have to go between this land. It's called Malta. Now, the Phoenicians borrowed a Canaanite word, and they called it Malta. The word Malta means refuge. It means the place of refuge. It it is quite literally between his launching point and his landing point. And I experienced Malta in my own life. I told you guys last week, started a story about how I used to I spent a couple of years working at Dave Smith Motors in Kellogg, Idaho. It's a really beautiful little mountain town. If you haven't been up there, you should. You should go up and visit. Um, And so uh, after my church plant sort of circled the drain and did a nosedive, I got a job selling cars. I had a preaching degree. I literally wasn't qualified to do anything else. It was that or insurance, and I like cars better. So I went out there and I was reflecting on all of the graces that the Lord had brought into my life through Dave Smith Motors. And I experienced nearly daily temptations to cut corners. Oh man, as a salesman, a car salesman, you're selling the greatest depreciating asset in the history of the world, right? Talk about a a step down in your job description. And so I experienced daily temptations to cut corners, to manufacture fake deals. Man, we had a guy there I won't tell you the story. Someday, I, I tell, remind me to tell you the story, but some guys would manufacture fake deals, and then they would skip town with the money. 
temptations to deceive customers about the status of their vehicle or the state of their vehicle, the drivability of it. Temptations to yield to my natural aggressive tendencies. And temptations to pursue adulterous relationships. I saw it going on all around me. The opportunities to abandon the word of God and Christian values and Christian principles were almost a daily experience. And I didn't want anyone to know that I was a pastor. And all I wanted to do was show up, make a paycheck so I could pay my bills and maybe do a little extra, and then go home to my beautiful wife and my cute little kids and let them just tackle me and drag me into the living room floor. That's all I wanted in life, right? And in the land in between, there is always the temptation to abandon our principles and to abandon our faith. It would have been all too easy for Luke and Aristarchus and Paul to arrive on this island and to say, "Ah, who needs it? Island life, it's good. Let's just retire right here. But they don't. I also experienced the favor of being relatively successful in that environment. When I first got there, I thought, when I got through training, I really didn't know anything about cars. And so I got through the training, and I thought, eh, I can fake my way through this. And I thought, eh, I can sell seven or eight cars, maybe ten cars a month. And there, that's a pretty low number. And, and so, but within a few months, I got into the top 20 salesmen. Now, there's a hundred salesmen there. So it is just a crazy environment. If you've never been there or been to their show floor, showroom floor, at the time, there were about 100 of us, and they would just constantly cycle salesmen through because they would burn out or flame out, whichever one in glory. And uh, so I, I quickly got into the top 20, and then I began to penetrate the top 10 on occasion. And so they took note of me. They were like, ah, this guy can sell cars. So they kept giving me better desks, like closer to the front door, which was great. And I was very tempted in the land in between, when you experience either success or prosperity that comes with success, you're very tempted to think that that's all because of you. And it wasn't. I had no expectation that that was going to happen, but God blessed me with it anyway. And I was tempted to be prideful, to think, oh man, this is because I'm a great salesman. I'm good enough, smart enough, people like me. But it was God's favor. It was his hand on me. I also experienced the occasional divinely scheduled appointment. I really did not like these. Like I told you, I didn't want anyone to know that I was a pastor. I just wanted to be there. I just wanted to make a living. I wanted to go home as soon as I could walk out that door. And on occasion, God would have something on his schedule. It would be on his schedule. I didn't know it was on his schedule. And then I would have to meet someone and share the gospel. I was like, thanks, God. And the word started to get around that I was a pastor in my former life. And I remember this one guy, he was the top salesman for many years. His name was Mike. I'll just call him Mike. And my, I mean, when I say he was number one on the board, he was number one and there was not a close second. Not, not most months. This guy was good. But, but it wasn't because he was a syrupy, snake oily salesman. He wasn't that kind of guy. Uh, Mike was just a hard worker. Whatever he lacked in charisma, he made up for in work ethic and it was astonishing. There are mornings I got there before the dealership opened to, get my, to prepare my deals for a customer coming in early. Mike was already there. There are nights when I left at 9.30 at night and there seemed like there was not another person on the campus. Mike was still there. <clears throat> Mike neglected his family for his work. Then he decided to start, he was tempted to start a relationship. He was in his mid-40s. He was tempted to start a relationship with a 20-year-old uh, young lady, a gal who worked behind the receptionist counter. 
And it became very apparent to all of us, everyone knew that they were having an affair. It was very clear. He was, she was his girlfriend. And then uh, about a year later, she left him for a younger guy. Imagine that. She got bored with the balding old guy. And she went, she's bolted to California with this young guy. And then his wife found out about the affair. Happened just about simultaneously. And his whole life imploded. I watched the guy's life just crumble beneath him. You see what Satan does? Do you see what he does? He always holds out that shiny piece of fruit. He goes, oh, you'll love it if you just bite it. You'll love it. And the truth is, you will love it. Because it's good for food. And then as soon as you bite it, you die. And for the next two, couple, three months, this guy looked like a living death. I mean, he just, he was disheveled. He wasn't coming into work. He wasn't showered. He wasn't shaving very well. His, his numbers on the board were going down and down. He was devastated. I remember I walked into the contract office one day or one of our uh, sort of a guy, our finance guy's office and the general manager of the dealership was sitting right there at, at the guy's desk and he was, Mike was sitting over where the customers normally sit and he's sitting there with his head in his hands and he's just sobbing. And the general manager, let me tell you, this guy's not a Christian. He's as lost as a man can be. And I hear him, and I'm trying to turn in this paperwork, and I'm trying to get out of there. And I hear him trying to give him some wise sage advice. I'm like, oh, please don't take this guy's advice. He knows nothing. And so I lay the contract down, and the general manager says, hey, man, weren't you like a pastor or a priest or something in your former life? And I was like, yes. And he literally did this. He motioned to me. He goes, hey. <laughs> like that. And the guy's just sobbing in his hands. I go, fine. <laughs> and I sat down next to him. I said, Mike, do you know that what you did was wrong? He goes, yeah, man, I know it was wrong. I go, do you understand that it's sin, that you sinned against a holy, righteous God? He goes, yeah, I believe that. I go, do you understand that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin, 100% of your sin, on the cross by dying on the cross and taking your penalty upon himself and dying on the cross. He goes, I totally believe that, man. I go, and he rose again on the third day bodily and ascended to the Father and defeated sin, death, and hell all for you. He goes, I believe it. And I got up and I said, my son, you're a Christian. Lord bless you. (laughs) And I left. I told you I was not in a good space. And things like that, I could tell you many more stories to take up all of our time, but things like that would happen a lot while I was there. And one day, I was standing by my desk, and a snaky salesman, man, this guy, there were some sneaky guys there, and he stole my car out from under me. I had taken this thing out of inventory, put a sold sign on it, a customer had a deposit on it. He took that car and sold it to his customer. Guys would do this sometimes, and I, honestly, I never did this intentionally. But sometimes things happen. And I was so angry at that guy. And I, and I had to call a customer and tell them, listen, another guy sold your car from under you. Don't come over. And I slammed the phone down, and I took the paperwork and threw it into the, on my desk. And just about that time, the vice president of the company walked by. And she turned around and made eye contact with me. And she said, can I see you in my office? I was like, great, now I'm in trouble. So I go and I sit in her office, and she said, Jeff, you're not here to sell cars. I go, so you're firing me. She goes, no, no, listen. 
you're not here, here to do car deals. You are here to be a light in darkness. God is using you out on that floor. You're the only gospel these men will, and she gave me the whole speech. She told me, you're the only pastor some of these men living in darkness will ever have. And she said, you're not here to do car deals. You're here to do something else. I was like, whatever, thank you. <laughs> and I just left. And I went back and sat at my desk, and I thought about what she said, and she was right. I experienced encouragement there. God was reminding me of my purpose. God was reminding me when I was in the land in between, when I was between that space of launching and landing where God wanted me, he was reminding me what my purpose was, and he was encouraging me. And I also learned gratitude. Let me tell you, man, I, I learned gratitude, and at the time I was starting to get what the New Testament refers to as a root of bitterness. Do you know what a root of bitterness is? It is a heart that is holding on to things. You keep filing issues. You file them away. And you keep holding on to them and you won't let them go. You won't burn the file. You won't give it to the Lord and ask the Lord to take it. And then a root of bitterness grows down into your heart's soil and it takes root and it begins to control your thoughts. And here's how you know you have it. Want to know how you have it? Look at your prayer journal, if you keep one, which you should. But look at your prayer journal. Look at your notes. And ask yourself the question, is your prayer journal just a list of grievances? Like one, and that's what mine was. And I got all the way, all the way down to item number 50 that I was just had a grievance about. And I realized this is not pleasing to the Lord. The Lord hasn't called you to be a cranky fault finder. The Lord's will for you, Jeff, is not for you to just become a grumpy critic. The Lord's will is for you to be thankful. And, and in my devotions, this is the passage that jumped out at me and just kind of went, pow. It says, you have rejected the Lord who is among you. He's with you. And you have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? This is the spirit of it. Why, did, why isn't it the way it used to be? That, would, that if you could see inside of my heart, that's what it looked like. Me just sitting there griping and complaining about everything that I, I just wanted it to be this way. And God is saying, look at all of these things I put into your life. You just had your third child, little Logan, who is this healthy, fat-headed little boy. Beautiful baby who brought so much joy to our life, this little walking comedian. I had so many things to just erase all of those grievances and say, thank you, God, for a paycheck. Thank you, God, for that beautiful kid. Thank you for a wife that works hard and loves these kids and raises them and just loves me. So much to thank the Lord for. And in the land in between, you will be tempted to be a grumpy fault finder. You will be tempted to become a critic. And Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, they might have some reasons to complain. They're shipwrecked on an island they didn't think they were going to be in, but they don't. They don't do that. And their ministry there turns out to be a blessing to all. Number two, don't be afraid to try again. Don't be afraid to try again. This is right here in the story. One of the hardest things to do after tragedy after a season in which you feel as though you've been wrecked, is to recuperate, to pick yourself back up, 
to let God resource you in those times. Now, the first voyage, the shipwreck, takes how long to tell? How long? Let's go back. Chapter 27, right? Chapter 27, going into chapter 28. So a chapter and a half, just about. The second voyage is three verses. You see, the first voyage was a wrecking. It was disastrous, full of calamity. It could only have been worse if they had died in the process, but they didn't. The second voyage is so uneventful that it only warrants two or three verses to even describe it. And this is how he describes it in verse 11. He says, after three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods as its figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there three days, and from there, after making the circuit along the coast, we reached Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up. Now, if you remember last week, this is how their story started. This is how they thought it was going to go the first time. A gentle, southerly breeze filled their sails, and off into the blue coastal waters they go, and then all hell breaks loose on their lives. But this time, no. That same south wind came, it sprang up, and and the second day we came to Puteoli, and there we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them, and so we came to Rome. As a church planter, I told you the story about planting a church, which led me to Dave Smith Motors, but I want to tell you the rest of that story. I had been incubated in a church culture in North Spokane that was a very aggressive church planting church world. Like, I had gotten in with them because as long as I can remember in ministry, for the better part of ministry, I just knew that God had called me to plant a church. I didn't know where, but I knew eventually, as I got older, around the age of 30, that God was calling me to plant a congregation and be the senior pastor of the congregation somewhere. And this was a church, a group of churches out of this church called Life Center in Spokane. That, that would send a church out, they would send 200 people out to start a church with $100,000. And their opening weekend, I was part of two of those churches, two of those, actually three, except the third one tanked. That was my church plant. But the other two were very successful. The first one that I was a part of, I was the worship pastor. I had Daniel's job. And as the worship pastor, we launched with a couple, about 180 people or something like that. And we launched our first day. We had 600 people on our first day, like launching day, success. And that church just took off like a, like a rocket ship. And then I was part of East Point Church. I was the associate pastor there. I didn't help plant the church, but I was there shortly after they had. And that church on their first day, 800 people took off like a, just, a, just a rocket man. My church... I planted it one year, the next year I had to replant it, and then the next year I had to replant it, finally I had to close it. So when we would have these church planting conferences or these seminars and all the pastors would come in who were planting churches or all the pastors who would come in who had done that, I would come in and I would sit there and I'm telling you, man, I was the most conspicuous guy in the room. I I felt like the one guy who was part of a church movement who did it wrong. And it was the greatest gift God ever gave to me was the gift of failure because it made me the man that I would become. It gave me the character to handle success when success would come. But at the time, I couldn't handle it, and God knew it. 
And so I just felt there was this incredible social stigma that you feel. It's not intentional by everybody else. Other people are not putting it on you, but you feel it because you failed. You wrecked. And I remember uh, after a while, I was working at Dave Smith Motors, and uh, I was attending East Point Church, where eventually I spent 10 years as associate pastor, executive pastor. And, uh, and I remember I was just attending at the time, sitting in the back of the room. When I sat in the back of the room, I didn't want anybody to know I was there. I did not sing. I did not clap during baptisms. I didn't do anything. My heart was just thawing. And I remember Kurt called me one morning. After about a year of that, Kurt called me one morning. He was a senior pastor there, and uh, I picked up the phone. I just happened to have my old Nokia. This is before the age of flip phones, remember? The flip phones. Well, before that, we had these things called Nokia phones, and they were this long. And you had to like push the button and wait for them to turn on for about 10 minutes. And, and so I put it beside my bed, on the, uh, right beside my bed. Normally I turned it off, but that night I didn't turn it off. And it rang at 6.30 in the morning and I picked up the phone and said, hello? And Kurt said, man, I'm puking my guts out here. I need some help. Can you pre- preach for me today? Is there any way you could preach for me? I was like, sure, no problem. So I hung up the phone, and I went, and, and I, I opened my file, and I got out an old sermon that I had done a few times before. I just microwaved it, heated it up. <laughs> and then I, off to East Point, and I remember we had this little steps right in front of the, the speaker's podium, and I was sitting right there. I was sitting right in the front row, and I remember sitting there. No one at that church knew who I was. I wasn't involved. I wasn't volunteering. I just had a friendship with Kurt. And I remember sitting there, and, I, and this is the thought, right, right as they were introducing me, no one is going to care about anything I have to say. This is going to be the worst sermon anyone's ever heard. And I just had this, these thoughts of self-doubt. And I was thinking, man, after I do this sermon, everyone will know this guy for sure should not be in ministry. And I get up, and I got my sermon out, and I did the whole message, and then I walked down off the stage, and at the end of the service, people were coming up to me with teary eyes, thinking, saying thank you so much for speaking into my heart. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And then the facility manager came up to me, big, tall guy, his name is Jeremy. He just put his octopus arms around me, and he was like, thank you, man, that served, changed my life. And I was like, well, whatever. And I got in my car, my 97 Dodge Intrepid, and I drove home, and, and I had this thought. I thought, maybe I could do this again. Maybe God hasn't given up on me. Maybe someday the Lord is going to move me back into a place where I can do ministry again. And he was. He was going to do that. Listen, isolation magnifies all problems, perceived or actual. Isolation magnifies all problems. It also intensifies all false beliefs. So any false beliefs that you hold, so long as you stay in isolation, you just ruminate on those things. You do it, I do it. We all do it. We sit there and we stew on it. And we ruminate on it and we won't give it up and then it just becomes magnified. It becomes a magnified issue and that's what had happened in my life and I needed someone to break through to me and to say, that's not true. That isn't true. God has a plan for you. So don't be afraid to try again. Don't be afraid to try again. You think, don't think for one second that Luke and Aristarchus and Paul, as they are walking across this pier for the second voyage, and as they are walking across that plank bridge onto the Alexandrian spice ship, don't think for one second that they didn't stop and go, wait, we're doing this again? We just did that. And that was hard. And yeah, they did it again. Try again. The Lord wants you to. And you may have wrecked your marriage. You may have wrecked a business venture. You may have wrecked a relationship. 
you may have wrecked your life savings or whatever the issue is, you can get up and come to Jesus and experience his mercy and his grace. Again, the place of Malta is called the place of refuge. It's the land in between. Number three, here's the admonishment from the text, the admonition. Don't allow your heart to become hardened. Folks, this is one of the most important things we can hear today is that in the process, do not allow your heart to become hardened. Paul reaches eventually his destination and he continues to proclaim his gospel. Verses 17 through 22, it says, Paul offered the good news of salvation first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. This is exactly what he does. He says this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, he says, I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Chapter 2, wrath, God's judgment is coming first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. God is fair. And so he offers it to the Jews He comes there to say, the gospel is yours. It belongs to you. This is your covenant. It's just been fulfilled. Verses 23 through 24, he did what he had always done. From morning till night, he explained to them from the law and the prophets that Jesus was the Messiah. In Moses and in the prophets, taking them to their Old Testament text, he explained to them right here, you know what Isaiah 53 says, and you know this can't be about anybody else. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him. Who else could this be about? Do you have another candidate? No. No one does, but they still don't believe it. And then verse 25 through 27, he reminds them of a prophecy that the gospel will be rejected by those who first heard it. God had actually actually predicted in Isaiah that many of the Jews who first received the gospel would reject it because of the hardness of their hearts. Now look at what he says. He says, go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding. And you will always be looking but you will never be perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown calloused. Their ears are hard of hearing and, and they shut their eyes to the truth and otherwise they might see with their eyes and they may hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and repent in faith. And I would heal them. I would heal you. And therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation that God has has already been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. Why was it hard for them to hear it? Because they had always heard it. One of the hardest things for you and I to do, especially as believers, especially as church-going folk, is to come in here and keep a soft heart before the Lord. Because we've heard it all and we've seen it all. And we have to be careful. We have to be admonished today not to have hardened hearts toward the Lord. This is serious business, folks. God offered the good news to his people first, but they were too familiar with it. And their hearts had become callous and stone cold against it. They listened, but they did not really hear it. They saw it clearly portrayed in the scriptures before them, but they did not receive it. Some of them did, but many of them didn't, and their hearts grew calloused. How does a hardened heart start? How do our hearts become cold toward the Lord? I want to show you in the Old Testament, Exodus 8. Remember the Pharaoh? Remember what God said? You're going to go in there, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. Remember Charlton Heston? Remember that movie? Let my people go. Right, I mean, that's an awesome movie. Like, remember that scene? He goes in there, he says, you're gonna do it, but they're gonna reject, he's gonna reject you. He's, he is going to harden his heart against the message. 
In chapter 8, verse 15, it says, He, Pharaoh, hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them. So which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart, or did the Lord harden his heart? Chapter 9, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. After this chapter, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 14, only speaks of God hardening Pharaoh. But it it begins with him hardening his own heart to the Lord. And this is why the writer of Hebrews has to tell the Jewish Christians in the first century who are about to jump ship, they're about to leave the Christian faith, he has to tell them, don't do this. How does he define it? It is a persistence and rebellion against God's truth. That's what a hardened soul is. Just a persistence and rebellion against God's truth. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other, daily, while it is still called today, so that none of your hearts become hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firm until the end, the reality that we had at the start. And as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as you did in the rebellion. Does God harden your heart? Yes. So what's the command? Don't harden your heart. Wait a minute. I thought you just said God is the one who hardens the heart. He is. So what am I supposed to do? Don't harden your heart. Stop doing that. Open your heart and open your mind to the gospel. Open your soul to the word of God. Because let me tell you, the heart that is predisposed to be hardened toward the Lord will be hardened by the Lord. That's a tough message to hear, but that is true. And it is a persistence in disobedience, a persistence to say, no, I will not listen. No, I will not surrender. And you become calloused. And the way you know you become callous is you just become a cranky fault finder. You find no grace or no mercy or no truth in anything. And the root of bitterness has taken root in your heart. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you that it, it pierces our soul. It pierces the darkness. It pierces the lies that we have been believing. It pierces us, and it penetrates and cuts through and tells us what the truth is. And if you're here this morning, this afternoon, and you're here, and you have believed a lie, and your heart has been calloused and stone cold toward the Lord, will you choose right now, choose right now to believe the truth? Will you open your heart? Do what Mike did in that office. Confess that you're a sinner. God, we confess that we have sinned and we can do nothing to help ourselves. God, we confess that we have sinned and fallen short of your glorious, holy standard. And after you confess your sins, you confess the truth about his cross. Jesus Christ died on a cross taking your penalty for sin. He atoned for your sin. 
And that's why he died. And he rose victorious over sin and hell and death, which we're all going to experience apart from Christ. And if you believe that, if you can make that good confession in your heart, believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth today, you are Jesus' child. You are Christ. You belong to Christ. Will you do it? Right now, in your heart, embrace it. This morning, if you're a believer and you're sitting here, but you've been on Malta, it's the space in between. And you thought you had this purpose, you thought you had this thing you had to become or this place you had to be in life and you find yourself right in between. Will you receive the encouragement from the word this morning? Lord, we commit ourselves to be faithful when we don't feel like being faithful. God, we commit ourselves to following you and to speaking the truth and ministering your healing and your mercy and your grace to others even in times when we feel empty. And God, we we refuse to allow a root of bitterness to take a hold of our hearts. We refuse it. Thank you, God, for delivering us. Thank you for delivering us to our purpose, the purpose that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.